You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. We're going to be kicking off our fall series, our fall teaching series. Typically, we try to do a longer one. It's going to be a 10-week series. It's going to take us all the way almost to Christmas. Can you imagine that? Crazy, I know. We're talking about Christmas already. Called counterculture. What's counterculture? It's a way of life, values, and attitudes that diverge from the prevailing social norm. Now, um, about a year ago, actually about this time last year, about four, I was invited into what was called an incubator. So, <laughs> that sounds weird, I know. Um, and so, what it was is once a month, so various pastors, particularly pastors that were coming in the early stages, maybe planning a church or wanting to plant a church, would gather together once a month for a day, would come in, we'd done some readings and exercises, um, case studies, we'd come together and hang out together, talk about that, workshop together, case studies together, teaching together, pray together. And uh, during that time, I met um, a guy called Spencer, and I think on the first or the second time we met, um, you know, typically what happens nowadays when you sit down, everyone pulls out their phone and puts it on the table. We all pull out our phones, smartphones, and then Spencer had this tiny little thing, it looked like a phone, but I'd never seen it in a long time. Do you remember those old school phones, like Nokia or whatever, that all it did was make calls, receive calls, send texts, receive texts. Can you imagine? Not a smartphone, a dumb phone. And so everyone's looking at Spencer's phone. It's like, Spencer, what is that? He says, yep, this is my phone. Doesn't do anything social media, can't send me any notifications, no emails. I can just get texts, usually from my wife or my kids or whatever, and make calls and receive calls. And we were all intrigued. Everybody had the room. And uh, it's like, oh my gosh, what's that like? And he began to tell us why he had got to that place, that you know, phone and just being constantly dropped and just eaten into his time and family time. And just, it was an unhealthy thing. He just didn't want his, the culture of his family. He didn't want that. The culture of his life, he didn't want that. And I said, how's it being received when you go to different places? How are people, he says, let me tell you this, without fail, all the adults, they all look at me and go, oh, what must that feel like? Kind of like a longing, I wish I could do that. It says, without fail, it says, the only group of people that don't understand is teenagers. <laughs> like, what is that? Why? <laughs> and so, in some way, in a light-hearted way, that little story represents what counterculture really is. It's when we choose a course of path, when we have a conviction, values, and attitude about something, it's intriguing to others. It can attract people to this, why, what, what's going on there? Why are you doing that? And it can also create some misunderstanding, like, why are you doing that? And repel maybe some people. And so we're going to be speaking in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how Jesus calls every single one of us into a way of following him that is nothing short of countercultural. That is nothing short of being very attractional. If you look at Jesus' life, he was very attractional to some people, but also some people misunderstood him, didn't understand what he was doing and why he would do the things he did. And so Jesus invites all of us into that life, and it's going to confront us, and it's going to challenge us, but it's also going to be the path if we want true freedom, fulfillment, and flourishing. As a lofty claims, but Jesus enters into the midst of all the other things that are claiming out there to get you towards freedom, flourishing, and fulfillment. And he says, come, follow me. And so we're going to be doing a deep dive. And one of the major texts we're going to be spending time in is from Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read a big part of it today, and then we're going to jump in and um, talk a little bit about that. I'm going to try to set up the the next uh, 10 weeks for us as best as I can. And so this is Paul the Apostle writing to a church in the region of Galatia. And um, 
it's uh, a church that's largely a lot of Jewish Christians, so they were Jews, and they began to put their faith and trust in the Messiah. And so it's towards the end of the letter, and so anyway, he says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do or make a practice of doing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Any guesses where we might spend the next nine weeks after Sunday? We're going to look at the kind of person that Jesus wants to produce within us and the kind of response that he wants to garner us towards life and other people, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but before we dive into the specifics, all nine fruit of the Spirit, we're going to talk a little bit about what Paul outlines in the first couple of verses of the passage we just read. He talks about a war. And it's not a war out there. It's not a war with the culture. You know, one of the dangers of calling these series countercultures, it can sound like us versus them. That's not that kind of series. We're not that kind of church. We're, we're more looking at what is the war not out there, but in here. And how is it that Jesus is calling me to turn away from things in my life and embrace things that are radically countercultural? Uh, countercultural, maybe to me or even to the surrounding culture that I find myself in. And so, verse 17, he talks about this war within, if you will. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Let's talk a little bit about desire and what it means, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. So desire really is any kind of intense longing, craving, passion for something. In some parts of scripture, desire is translated to the word lust. Now, when we use the word lust, almost always we use it in the context of sexual immorality. And so it's really unhelpful to talk about desire in that way, because desire, as you can see, can be harnessed for good, but it can also be harnessed for bad, right? Desires of the flesh, obviously bad, but desires of the spirits. There's something about passion with, with, with people of desire. And so then this word flesh, this word flesh can be um, mistaken to mean something it's not talking about. You know, um, how many of you, English is not your first language? Yeah, there's quite a few of us. Many people in Toronto, English is not their first language. And when learning English, I've heard from a lot of people, it's a really hard language to learn. I wouldn't know. I mean, even for English-speaking people, it's like, English is really hard. Right? Like, one of the reasons why it's so hard is because one word can have so many different meanings. For example, date. When you hear the word date, what comes to mind? Something like, oh, a romantic appointment. I have a date this week. Or it can mean a delicious fruit. Anyone had dates recently? Or it can mean, what's today's date? 
right? How on earth do you know which date is being used? Well, it depends on the context. And it's kind of similar when you come to the New Testament, because it wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And Greek words also have multiple meanings. Hence, this word flesh is the Greek word socks. S-A-R-X, socks. It can mean literally flesh. You have flesh on you right now, right? Do you not? Okay? Body. It can mean a physical body. It can refer to a lot of people. And the scriptures talk about all flesh is like the grass. It all is gone here today, gone tomorrow. It's talking about all people. Is that what Paul's referring to? No, he's not referring to. And it's really important because some people have mistaken this to mean like anything material in my body is bad. And that's not what he's saying. There's a third meaning, which I think is what he's not. I think it is what he's using here. It's a figurative meaning of the word flesh, and it's something about our sinful tendencies. It's really hard to kind of nail down what exactly that is, but it's a part of us. Even for those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, there's a part of us that has a sinful tendency that can be orientated away from God. Now, one author put it like this, it's flesh is the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. Another said it like this, our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, particularly in the areas of sensuality. And then the third um, one is this, I read kind of like this one, flesh is our coping strategies for life apart from God. It's how we get through life when we don't have God in our life. It's how we cope through life when we numb it through overindulgence or whatever it may be. And so one of the ways I like to think of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit is like it's two different operating systems. Okay, I'm going to a place I shouldn't be going because I really know nothing about software and IT and that kind of thing. But I know enough about this. Did you ever see years back, you sent these ads, there was the Mac guy and the Microsoft guy. And they were like, okay, if you Google it, I'm not Google it, YouTube it, it's hilarious. And there's two very different operating systems. And depending on what operating systems we appeal to, leads us to very different results. For instance, the desires of the flesh is an operating system that orientates us away from God. It leads to enslavement, and it results in vices. I mean, he lists a whole bunch of different vices there, and you know, there's more that you can do. The other operating system is we can be orientated toward God. And it actually leads to true freedom and it results in fruit, some great fruit that he listed there. So now, having these, uh, these different desires, and these conflicting or opposing desires, it's not a new problem, and it's not even a Christian problem. Now, Paul gives Christian language to it, and he introduces a solution to it, which is quite unique. We're going to talk about that as we get towards the end of this message. But we know it's part of human nature that we have competing desires in us, Right? I desire to be fit and healthy, but I also desire ice cream and chocolates and bags of chips at night, right? Which desire wins out? You know, wait and see. <laughs> you literally can wait and see. <clears throat> How's it going in that area, Richard? And how about you? This person, you have desires, you desire to have freedom in a certain way, but you also desire to save and invest, and so you, you curb the desire to spend on that item, or you don't. So we have these competing desires. It's an ancient old human condition. We have hierarchy desires. Now, traditionally, it's been noble to be able to restrain your desires, to be able to restrain certain desires and um, deny certain freedoms for greater desires, more noble desires, and for greater freedoms. 
But today, in our day and age, you might say, what war? What war are you talking about? Because in our culture, we're encouraged to really cast off restraint. In our culture, we're encouraged to follow the desires of our authentic self. Now, see if you recognize these mantras today, either in movies, in pop songs, in uh, just day-to-day life, either directly or indirectly, and these are ways in which people are trying to frame reality, are trying to frame what it is to achieve freedom, fulfillment, and human flourishing. Follow your heart. You do you. Speak your truth and be true to yourself. Ever heard of that? Yeah, it comes up in Disney shows to adult shows to everything in between. And these are ways in which people are trying to frame how reality works best. It's the question for us to say, is that true? Is it true that if I just follow my internal navigation system? Because it assumes a lot about your desires. It assumes that they're pure, that they're actually helpful to you, that there's no conflict there. And we just know that something you're too complex to have that all laid out for you. It's funny, uh, be true to yourself, and actually some of you, if you're English majors, will recognize that it comes from a Shakespearean play called Hamlet, right? To thine own self be true, I think was the original, and we ended up with be true to yourself. But in Hamlet, do you know who says that? It's the guy who's kind of the fool. <laughs> but somehow we've taken that, it's like, this is the wisdom of our age, be true to yourself. And uh, sometimes... That's not really the way we should be living our lives. I love what Jonathan Grant in his book, he says, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside, by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine a unique identity. And so there really is this tension today. There's this tension today that if you really are going to be true to yourself, you're going to have to cast off what society's told you, maybe what your parents have told you, what your culture's told you, what your family of origin's told you, or what your church tells you, what scripture, what even God says, you be true to yourself. And it's, it's dangerous. We take that to its fullest conclusion. And so in this kind of new religion of self, where desire is unchallenged, encouraged to be followed, the ultimate sin is to not follow your heart, right? You're shackled if you're not following your heart or some institution external authorities telling you maybe you should curb certain desires and certain freedoms. A theologian Cornelius Plantinga observes it like this. He says, in such a culture, the self exists to be explored, to be indulged and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. The question for us is, is an unrestrained, undisciplined self truly free? Is that true freedom? Is that what it means to be free, to experience a life of flourishing and fulfillment? Um, In philosophy, they talk a lot about um, negative and positive freedom. Uh, Negative freedom is seen as freedom from something. Now, this could be, even says negative, it can actually be a positive thing. For instance, if you're in an abusive relationship, freedom from that would be a good thing. Um, and uh, the opposite would be a positive freedom, not freedom from, but freedom for something. And so what, uh, what in our society today, I think freedom is being framed as freedom not just from something, freedom from everything. Freedom from everything, any kind of external authority or moral structure, everything 
You do you, you follow you, you just got to look inward, and whatever's inward tells you, go with that. Be true to yourself. That's the most authentic way to live. And so we can frame negative freedom as something to be the, the power to be and to do whatever we want, and not the orientation. It's all about me. I am the center of that universe. And so we would ask, is that how reality is set up? Uh, in the absence of God, it makes a valid point, but if God is in the equation, perhaps that is not a great way to live. And so what we end up in the pursuit of a negative freedom, a freedom from everything, is actually not freedom, but what one author calls the slavery of freedom. There's a freedom we can pursue that actually makes us more enslaved and in bondage. Uh, Tim Keller, we quote him a lot here. Um, he sees it like this. We see that freedom is not what the culture tells us. It's not the absence of constraints. It's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. Now, you don't have to be a person of faith to think rationally about this and see how this actually works. And he uses a very simplistic illustration that I think is helpful. He talks about fish. But a fish is constrained by water. But what if one day a fish decides, you know what, I'm sick and tired of being constrained by water I want to be able to live free and to pursue my deep, authentic self out of the water. And so the fish manages to get himself out of the water, and he's free, and now he's there. <laughs> Overly simplistic, but what is that water doing? It's a constraint. But it's a constraint not denying your freedom, it's a constraint giving you the maximum of freedom for you. It's the right constraint for flourishing, fulfillment, and staying alive for that fish. Take it out of the right, the right constraint and all sorts of danger happens. And so we can apply it then obviously to human beings. The question is what would be right constraints? And in a world where we believe in a God that's involved, we can say, well maybe it's appealing and looking to God. What are the constraints that he's placed upon us not to squelch our freedom, not to squelch our joy, but to maximize our freedom, maximize our joy. Constraints can be a good thing. In fact, it can be a great thing to make us into better people, not shackle us as sometimes is a heartache to be brought across. Uh, love, right? If anyone's married here or anyone has a desire to be married one day, you're going to come up very quickly know constraints. There are constraints when you get into a relationship of love and commitment. For instance, if you want to have intimacy with another person, you have to give up your autonomy. One of the things in marriage when you work is what we call just a, a healthy balance of giving up certain rights. You know, a healthy balance of, I used to put my needs first, but now I need to consider another person's needs, right? And so what is that doing? Those constraints are actually making your marriage better and actually making you a better person than if you said, I do me, you do you. See how that marriage goes for you, right? And so I know I'm making very over-simplistic, but I think you get the point, and we can drive these down deeper, layer by layer, layer by layer, to talk about anything, our identity, how we come to know who we are, and choices we make in life, and what's important, what's not important, what success is, what success isn't. These constraints help form us into better people if they're the right constraint. And so... We come back to the war thing. We come back to these competing things within us. 
And so the question is, okay, well, if there is that war, these competing desires, how do we win that? How do we overcome that? And this is where Paul now begins to offer a unique perspective, offers a faith perspective into how to combat those competing desires. So let's turn the last few minutes to how to win the war. And earlier in Galatians, he has a couple of very important scriptures for us. In chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about how Christ has set us free. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. He goes on in verse 13 and says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So step one, there's a three-step process here, right? Step one, he talks about how we're called to freedom. You need to know that one of the key things of Jesus' life and ministry was to come into our existence, come into our sphere, uh, walk like we do while the absence of sin, um, because he wants us to be free, that he is committed to your freedom. He is committed to you living a full life. Now, we might have different definitions of what that is with Jesus, but he is committed to our freedom. You are called to freedom. Um, in fact, in Jesus, uh, in, in this, uh, in this uh, Galatians, Paul talks about three parts, not just two. We've been looking at the flesh and the spirit, but there's really three ways to live. There's the law, the flesh, and the spirit. And he spent a lot of the time just dealing with the law. In fact, he's talking about you were called to freedom, you were called to freedom from the law. And so law, we, the law we can think of as, as um, kind of moral restraint. You do this, don't do this. A lot of people think Christianity is that. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. And that's why they reject those external authorities. That, that's a way to live. That's a way to restrain those desires. Stop doing that. Do this. Don't do that. Do that. That's one way. Um, then he talks about the flesh. Like, I don't give a rip about that. I'm just going to indulge myself in any which way and see how that goes for you. And then he introduces, but there's another way to live that's better than going through a moral restraint. It's better than just casting off restraint. It's to be governed and lived under the rule of the Spirit. Now, uh, Professor of New Testament Richard Hayes talks about this, and I love this. He says, it's a peculiar irony that in the modern and postmodern world, Christianity has come to be regarded as narrow and moralistic. Originally, it was quite the reverse. Figures such as Jesus and Paul were widely regarded as rebels, antinomians, and disturbers of decency. Isn't that Jesus, disturber of decency? Da-da-da. I follow Jesus, the disturber of decency. <laughs> and so antinomian is, is just basically, uh, it's a belief that grace trumps uh, the law in such a way that um, if we subscribe to grace, we don't need to then fulfill the law. And it can be abused. People can say, well, no, you just live by grace. And it doesn't matter. If you, if you preach grace right, it doesn't lead you to uh, just living however you want. But if you preach grace right as well, it also can be kind of dangerous. Like, yeah, like, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to set us free. He came to set us free that we would have an internal governance. You know, the more a government, the more society has to put on external restraints on people, that's not a good thing. Uh, there has to be a level where there's some restraint from within us. And so, step one, we're called to freedom. Know that Jesus wants you and I to be free, free from the, the bondage of the law, to be free from the bondage of your own flesh and your own carnal desires that may look appealing, but actually will lead to your more enslaved. Step two, though, he goes on and says, Crucify the flesh. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus 
and crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, you've got to remember that crucifixion in his time was the most violent way to die. And fresh in their minds is the crucifixion of Jesus. This is how Jesus died. You know, maybe fresh, maybe a couple of decades since Jesus died and he's writing. So it's very fresh, very visceral, very visual in their minds. And he's saying, you don't make friends with your flesh. You don't manage your flesh. Your flesh. You don't make peace with your flesh. You crucify that sucker. You put it to death, not once or twice, daily. It's the only way to deal with that side of that orientation that wants to find life apart from God, that wants to find gratification apart from God. You don't negotiate with it. You put it to death. You crucify it. Because every time we feed that, every time we give in to that, every time we indulge that, that's the word he uses, every time we do that, we strengthen it. And we allow a greater power and control over us. And that's not good. It will deform us, it will enslave us, and it will lead us down a path we don't want to really end up on. But how exactly? He said, okay, great, crucify it. Like, how do you actually do that? Do I take a fork and just stab myself all? Remember, that's what the flesh he's talking about. It's a, it's, a, it's a figure part of you, that orientation. So how do we do that? Step three, he gives us a clue. He says, live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. When your willpower is not sufficient, it's the Spirit's power. This is not unique to Christianity. Now, willpower, we're not an anti-willpower. If you've got willpower to deny certain things, have at it. If your willpower can get you into bed at a decent hour and you're not watching, binge-watching that Netflix show, that's awesome. If your willpower can put down that second portion of dessert, have at it. If your willpower cannot make you over in dollars and those kind of things, great. But what happens that you know it when there's certain areas where your willpower is just non-existent? There is no willpower. doesn't matter how much I want to be a morning person, I have no willpower to be a morning person. And you know what? I'm in my 40s now and I don't care. <laughs> I am happy to not be a morning person. I had one, pa- one pastor say, you know what? I don't think God exists until the second cup of coffee. I'm like, I like your theology. <laughs> like, I feel that. And so when, when, not if, but when your willpower is exhausted, and when there are certain areas of life where you just have no power over that thing, that thing has power of you, Paul says there's another power that you and I can tap into. It's the Spirit's power that is within us. And so you might say, how then? How do we tap into the Spirit's power? And so some people will tell you, man, it's just you need to come up on a line here and get prayed for and maybe fall over under the Spirit's power. And I've been in those lines and I've fallen under the power of the Spirit. I'm telling you, man, the Spirit is powerful to do things like that in my lives. But that's not mostly how God's changed me in my life. And I subscribe to you, that's not mostly how God wants to change you in your life. It's a lot less dramatic than that. It's a lot less exciting than that. But it's a lot more fruitful than that. How he wants to change us. I love this quote for me. It sums it up. Ruth Heavy Barton, her fantastic book, Sacred Rhythms. She calls it like it is. She says this, I cannot transform myself or anyone else for that matter. What I can do is create the conditions in which spiritual transformation can take place. By developing and maintaining a rhythm of spiritual practices that keep me open and available to God. Paul talks about if we live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. This is what it means. You know, all throughout that passage, he talks about walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. I love that language, but that language, it talks about a journey, it talks about a relationship. 
And this is what it is to live by the Spirit, what it is to give greater desires of the Spirit in our lives and deny the desires of the flesh. Is we cultivate and create the conditions in which God does what He does based on our lives, change us, transform us. And so there's a partnership there. You can't do what God does best, transform you. Okay? If you try to transform yourself, you know, if you're married, if you try to transform your spouse, doesn't work very quickly. It's like, I can't change you. I didn't think I, uh, no one told us that in premarital counseling. That might have been a deal breaker. And so, the same with us. Like, we really can't change ourselves fundamentally. It's what God does best. But God doesn't just snap us, zap us whenever he wants. So as we create the conditions, as we put ourselves in a place for God to work in our lives, we allow him and give him greater access to him in our lives. And so the question is, what am I doing with my responsibility? Am I creating the conditions through which spiritual through spiritual practices that God's empowering and transforming presence, his spirit, can bear fruit in my life, can bear fruit in your life? That we create the conditions, we put ourselves in a place that opens ourselves up to God's spirit, or we create conditions where we continually open ourselves up to the desires of the flesh. And I love the metaphor of fruits, and we're going to be talking a lot about fruit over the next nine weeks. The fruit, not as fruit singular, not nine fruits of the spirit, fruit singular of the spirit. The spirit's work in life. Why I like the analogy of fruit is it's organic. It's an agricultural term. And it's, it means fruit. I don't know if you've ever planted stuff, but it takes a while for stuff to show up, right? It takes a while. Sometimes it looks like nothing is happening. I watered the plant. I did what I was supposed to do. Gave it sunshine, and I'm watching it. Nothing's happening. Right? Does it feel like that in your life? I'm doing the things. I'm here. I'm in church. And it's a lot. It's back to back. Two Sundays in a row, man. That's unheard of in three years. Who does that anymore? I'm here. I actually even had some quiet times lined up this week. I'm reading my Bible. Who does that? It's so countercultural. You know, but nothing's happening. It looks like that, right? But if you just keep doing it, keep watering, keep in the sunshine, keep doing the things that you need to do, don't drown your plant, by the way. Don't ever give me or Chantal your plants to look after them. We will kill them. <laughs> not intentionally, but we just do not have that thing. Then you're I digress. And then all of a sudden, one day you might see a little bud. Like, oh, it's life. It's life. And if you keep doing the stuff, more buds. And you keep doing the stuff, you'll see fruits. You keep doing the stuff, and you'll be able to harvest that fruit. And you keep doing the stuff, and all of a sudden it looks like it's dead again. The seasons, right? It's not always harvest time in your life. It's not always just digging up fallow ground in your life. So I love the fruit analogy, the fruit of the Spirit, because it's a slow but steady growth. And God, by His Spirit, yes, sometimes He accelerates it. Absolutely, we pray for that. God, come and accelerate the work in our lives, in our culture. But mostly, it's a slow and steady, organic process. A bit of a mystery to it, right? I do the things, but I'm not quite sure how that all works. Photosynthesis, all that stuff that I was supposed to learn in school, like, that's, it's going on there somehow. Like, awesome. But it's slow and steady growth. But am I doing the conditions? Am I watering? Am I putting myself in? Am I doing those disciplines, those practices that she talks about, creating the conditions? And so the other thing I love about fruits is fruits is never forced. Right? An orange doesn't like, ah, oh, I'm gonna be an orange. It comes naturally. If it's connected to an orange tree, it will produce oranges if the conditions are right. And so it's not on you to produce this fruit, it's on you to put yourself before God regularly through certain practices 
that allow him to live to transform you. And over time, you will bear fruit. You will bear great fruit that reminds people and looks like Jesus. It looks intriguing. What, why on earth is your life different? You know, why on earth would you have that kind of phone? When everyone else has got this kind of phone, why on earth would you not want to have a 24-7 access to social media? When everyone else is, you just have 24 access to social media. Why on earth do you have peace when I'm, and I'm just so anxious and worried about things? You know the words of Jesus today? You know you heard that words of Jesus, don't be anxious? You know how hard that is? Do you know how hard that is, right? Right now, some of you are anxious, right? Your bills that we pay. Tuition, whatever it is, and Jesus comes, he's kind of culture, don't be anxious. Wow. Wow, this Jesus is intriguing, he's, I, don't, I don't know what's going on there. But as we put ourselves, as we put ourselves before God, there is a peace that will take over your anxiety, there's a joy that will take over your despair, there's a love that will take over your fear, there's a self-control that will take over your self-indulgence, there's, and on and on, and that's what we're going to be looking at over the next nine weeks. We're going to look diving into this fruit of the Spirit. Um, and we're going to see how it's manifested and cultivated in our lives, and it's a response that we need to have towards life. Uh, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the way to true freedom, to true fulfillment, and to true uh, flourishing. And this is the way of Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to go into a time of communion, but let me pray for you, and let me ask God to do something in our hearts today that would set us on the course to create conditions that produce the fruit that He wants to see in our lives. If you're comfortable, you might want to have a posture that just opens up your hand as a, as a receiving. And so, Father, we, we come before you and <clears throat> uh, we acknowledge that maybe we think we're the center of our universes, but we know that that's a faulty way of looking at reality. This universe is far too complex for us to ever get our heads and hearts around. And so, in an act of humility, we say, Jesus, would you become the center of our universe, of our world? And in doing so, would you reorientate our hearts towards you that would lead to true freedom, not enslavement, that would produce the fruit? Would the operating system of my life be more the desires of your spirit than the desires of my flesh? God, I'm so aware of the flesh that wants to rise up and wants to tell me a different way of looking at reality, a different way of pursuing fulfillment of freedom, a different way of pursuing gratification. God, those needs are legitimate, but there are illegitimate ways to pursue that, and we want to pursue the legitimate ways to those things. The way of your spirit, the way of walking in the way of Jesus and bearing fruit. So I pray in this moment, Holy Spirit, have your way in us, help us, even practically, Lord, even the certain practices that will open us up more fully to your work in our lives, that we would create the conditions for you to do what you do best, transform us, empower us to live by the Spirit. For your glory, our joy, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.